these are extraordinary times, but with too much information and much of it confusing. On Body Ecology Living, I interview some of the best minds to help you live your best life possible. We'll discuss topics on using foods to heal, on building a hearty immune system, on aging well, on taking care of your gut and, of course, your brain, but most of all, on clarifying the right steps to be happier, healthier, and having the energy to make a difference in your own world. Welcome, everybody, to Body Ecology Living. Everybody, I think, that has any kind of health problems today, one of the, probably the top problem that they deal with is fatigue. So I was very fortunate to be able to track down Ari Witten, and he's probably the top expert out there on the topic of fatigue. I hope you're already tuning in all the time to his um, Energy Blueprint podcast, and he has a website, theenergyblueprint.com. He's a master at understanding why you have energy, why you don't have energy, and what to do to get, you know, to get well and create energy. Because I've said for many, many years that first and foremost, you must create energy to get well. And so uh, conquering infections, cleansing out toxins, uh, getting rid of the inflammation, fixing the gut, those are all important and they actually all increase energy. But if you don't have energy, you can't fix any of those other problems. So first and foremost, you have to create energy. and Again, that's why this podcast is going to be so enlightening today. And I do want to be sure to tell you right up front that um, Ari wrote this great book. It's a super bestseller on Amazon, and it's called Eat for Energy. Uh, every chapter is completely, uh, I mean, it's just super easy to understand and very thorough because um, Ari's really good at explaining things. So um, Ari, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me, Donna. You know, it's, uh, I told you this last time we connected, but it's a great honor for me. You know, I, I followed your work 20 years ago when I was a teenager um, and I was learning about probiotics and gut health and all of that stuff. So it's always a pleasure to connect with you. Well, that's really, you know, it's so nice to be validated like that because you never know what kind of impact you're having on, your, on anyone's life. So thank you. But um, so the thing is, I'd like to start off by, uh, for many years, all of us that were practitioners believed in a theory, the adrenal fatigue theory, theory adrenal fatigue theory. And I even took courses uh, through A4M with Dr. James Wilson, who wrote this book, Adrenal Fatigue. And it was what everybody thought was going on, that the adrenals didn't have any energy, and then the thyroid was a big issue. So I'd like to start there, if you don't mind, explaining why that theory is incomplete. It's not like it's bad, but it's incomplete. I'll explain why, but I would go further than saying that it's incomplete and say that it's actually just wrong. I'm, I'm in a unique position to discuss this particular topic because I, I think that with the amount of time that I've spent looking at the research on this topic, I've got to be in the top 10 people on the entire planet as far as, you know, the number of hours spent looking at the topic of adrenal fatigue or uh, literature relevant to the idea that uh, chronic stress leads to adrenal exhaustion or adrenal burnout or something, some variation of that, some permutation of that kind of hypothesis. Um, I have a lot to say on this. We could easily spend a couple hours on this topic alone. But um, the, the very short version of this sort of 30,000 foot view is after my own personal bout with, uh, with chronic fatigue in my, in my mid-20s after being infected with um, Epstein-Barr virus and getting severe mononucleosis, uh, I, I had chronic fatigue for about a year following that. And, um, and I was diagnosed with adrenal fatigue and um, I saw many practitioners that, you know, said that I had adrenal fatigue. So I developed a strong interest in the topic. And um, a couple things related to that. One was I also saw conventional medical doctors at the time. And, um, and they kind of brushed off. They poo-pooed the, the whole adrenal fatigue hypothesis like it was a bunch of nonsense. And, and actually, that really irked me. That really pissed me off. because. Uh, 
I was a, you know, a staunch advocate for natural health. I'd been studying natural health since I was 12 years old. So I already had a big uh, background in, in nutrition and, and health science more broadly. And, um, and a lot of the people who were my mentors and the people I looked up to were saying adrenal fatigue, this adrenal fatigue, that were writing books and articles and making videos on adrenal fatigue. And I was absolutely convinced that adrenal fatigue was in fact a very real thing. And not only that, but that I had adrenal fatigue because I was being diagnosed with it. And because I saw the conventional medical doctors kind of saying that, you know, this whole adrenal fatigue thing is pseudoscience, it's nonsense. I got really angry about that, and I actually uh, decided to write a book on the topic, basically with the idea that I was going to dig into the scientific literature and prove to these conventional medical doctors that there is a body of scientific evidence that supports uh, the idea that adrenal fatigue is a real thing. So I started digging into the science, and you know, the first interesting thing that happened was when I went in PubMed and Google Scholar and typed in adrenal fatigue, nothing came up. I mean, literally nothing. There, there were no studies on this topic of adrenal fatigue, which if you know anything about, and I know you do, Donna, but for listeners, um, if you know anything about looking up medical conditions on PubMed or Google Scholar, I mean, you can look up the most obscure medical condition imaginable, like some rare genetic disease that affects one in 50 million people and find at least dozens, if not hundreds, or maybe thousands of, of studies that exist on that topic. But if you look up adrenal fatigue, you get nothing. So that was the first kind of red flag that something was off there. Then it took me a while to even find any relevant research because if there's nothing that comes up with adrenal fatigue, what are you supposed to look up? So I started looking up things like chronic stress and cortisol. I started looking up chronic psychological stress, chronic physical stress from let's say um, overtraining, physical overtraining like in athletes. Um, I started looking up relationship stress. I started looking up metabolic stressors like cigarette smoking or alcohol consumption. I started looking up, um, this was the big one. I started looking up, uh, you know, chronic stress and chronic fatigue and what, what are the terms related to that. And then I started to uncover there are, there are some accepted medical terms that are um, similar to this idea of adrenal fatigue. Um, things like stress-related exhaustion disorder and clinical burnout and burnout syndrome and, chron and chronic fatigue syndrome, of course. Um, but some of these burnout syndrome, stress-related exhaustion disorder, um, vital exhaustion, these are more directly sort of chronic stress leading to this symptom of fatigue. The only difference between those and the idea of adrenal fatigue is that ad the adrenal fatigue hypothesis is specifically saying that chronic stress wears out the adrenal glands resulting in cortisol abnormalities that, and that is the cause of the fatigue. Whereas these other things don't posit that physiological mechanism. So anyway, I found these other conditions that are similar to this idea and that are testing HPA axis function, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and cortisol levels in the context of these people with stress-related exhaustion disorder, vital exhaustion, chronic fatigue syndrome, clinical burnout, burnout syndrome. All those studies exist, in fact, and it took me a long time to figure out everything I just told you and like what I should even be searching for to, bring, to find these studies that exist. It took me months. And um, all in all, to dig into all of this science that exist, exists on this topic relative to chronic fatigue of various kinds and adrenal function and cortisol levels, I spent about a full year of my life doing nothing but this topic. So like literally one full year dedicated to this topic alone. And at the end of it, what I compiled was a body of evidence and specifically talking about these fatigue disorders and the relationship with adrenal function and cortisol what I found was that the evidence did not support my presumptions that adrenal fatigue was a real thing. Did you start telling people that? I did, yeah. And in fact, I, I think I, I, it's hard for me to say this with a huge amount of certainty because there's obviously lots of other things going on. But I, I believe that I've been one of the big needle movers in helping the functional medicine community 
let go of this idea of adrenal fatigue and move on to, to better hypotheses. But the, the gist of this body of evidence was that there were 59 studies in total, 59 individual studies, and another 20 um, systematic reviews or, and, and meta-analyses. These are where researchers in the field are gathering the studies that exist, let's say, on clinical burnout or burnout syndrome or stress-related exhaustion disorder, one of those things, and cortisol levels. So they're doing reviews, and I'm doing kind of a meta-meta review of all of this entire body of evidence. So of these 59 studies, 15 of them supported the, the idea that there are there are slightly lower cortisol levels in people with these fatigue syndromes compared to normal healthy people. And actually, let me step back one second before I get there. Um, this is really science 101, okay? So if the, the idea of, of the adrenal fatigue hypothesis is, is very simple. So chronic stress taxes your adrenal glands in an acute way. It's fine, but when it happens chronically, it sort of wears out the adrenal glands. You get low cortisol levels. That causes these symptoms. Well, I was going to say, can the stress be from an infection, for example, not just stress from like daily life? Yeah, so we can talk about this from two perspectives. There's sort of two bodies of evidence we can look at. One is the relationship of cortisol and adrenal function to chronic fatigue and, and burnout sort of symptoms. And then we can also look at the body of evidence around chronic stress of various kinds. And I mentioned a number of those um, different types of chronic stressors. You can look at psychological stressors. There's lots of um, studies that have examined different kinds of psychological stressors to work stress, financial stress, um, relationship stress, and then physical stressors like physical over-exercising, over-training, um, to metabolic stressors like um, cigarette smoking, alcohol consumption, or even um, diseases themselves. Like let's say what, like having chronic hyperglycemia, high blood sugar levels, um, in the context of type 2 diabetes is also, you could consider that, many people do consider that a metabolic stress. This is part of the total body stress load. Um, the, the body of evidence on all of those things exists. Research exists on cortisol levels in all of those contexts. So what, and I guess we'll, since we're already kind of going down this digression, we'll just complete it before I loop back to the fatigue stuff. What, what that body of evidence shows on basically every type of stressor you can think of, from psychological to physical to metabolic, and all those different stressors I just mentioned, the, the research is extremely consistent that there is no relationship between any of those chronic stressors and low cortisol levels. Okay, it, it does not show up in the scientific literature. What does show up very consistently is that almost every type of stressor you can think up to, with, to any degree, to any length of time, no matter how long it's been present, how many years or decades it's been present, is consistently and decidedly linked with elevations in cortisol levels. There is no point at which any of these stressors starts to be linked with low cortisol levels, which would be which would validate the the adrenal fatigue hypothesis. So, in this body of evidence related to these chronic fatigue studies in relationship to cortisol levels, again, science one hundred and one, it's very easy to validate this theory of adrenal fatigue if if the, the main cause of these symptoms of chronic fatigue is abnormal cortisol levels or low cortisol levels, then if you go and find a group of people with those symptoms, those chronic fatigue burnout symptoms, and compare them to normal healthy people, you should find that the people with chronic fatigue symptoms have abnormal cortisol levels, low cortisol levels, okay? Um, at least abnormal, some, some kind of abnormality. Um, and what the body of evidence shows is that that is not true. In fact, so of these 59 studies, 15 gave evidence for slightly lower cortisol levels, slightly lower, not even abnormally low, but still within normal range, slightly lower. 11 of them gave evidence for the exact opposite finding, slightly higher cortisol levels, and 33 of them were unable to detect any difference in cortisol levels between the group with chronic fatigue versus the normal healthy people. So when you have a body of evidence like that, you know, that, that's telling you that there is no 
clear association there. And if there is any kind of association, it is not a predictable one. Um, and it's so small as to not be an explanatory factor in those symptoms. Then where did you go? You must have been kind of perplexed at this point. And of course, wanting to explain what's really going on with burnout. Uh, is that where Dr. Navarro's work presented itself? Yeah. So um, at that point, I was confused. Confused is the right term because, uh, you know, remember, I went into that project with the intention of actually proving the adrenal fatigue hypothesis correct and writing a book on it. And at the end of all of my year of work, basically, I realized the evidence did not support the adrenal fatigue hypothesis and that the conventional medical doctors and endocrinologists who said that the whole thing was pseudoscience and was not supported by the scientific literature were correct about it. So um, at that point, I went, well, what the heck does cause fatigue? If, if it's not, you know, if, if low cortisol and abnormal adrenal function is not the thing that's present um, in the vast majority of people with these symptoms, what is going on? And uh, at that point, I basically just started a search like, okay, well, I know, let's start with sleep and circadian rhythm. Uh, everybody knows that if you sleep poorly, um, the next day you're, you're more tired, you have less energy. Why is that? What are the physiological mechanisms that mediate that? So I spent a long time studying circadian rhythm and sleep and figuring out the physiological mechanisms that link it with energy. Um, hormones impact energy levels, neurotransmitters impact energy levels. So I just spent a long time studying those topics, figuring out the mechanism. So uh, everybody knows hormones and neurotransmitters are linked with energy. So I spent a long time studying those and figuring out what's going on there. Um, and then, you know, what about nutrition and what about gut health and what about environmental toxicants and um, basically, I just went one, down one avenue after another and figured out what are the actual physiological mechanisms that link those different things with our energy levels. The problem was at the end of several years of, of doing that, I was left with sort of this massive, you know, 150 mechanism long list of all these different pathways and um, mechanisms in the body through which are that that either directly or indirectly affect our energy levels but i didn't really have any sort of coherent synthesis of you know what's regulating our energy levels and and what i mean by that is like if you think of a car for example every piece of the car almost every piece is necessary for that car to function so um looking at the engine like if if i take out a spark plug from the engine, that engine's not going to work anymore. Or if I take out all the spark plugs, certainly. If I take out the pistons, the engine's not going to work anymore. If I remove the engine block, that it's the car's not going to work anymore. You know, so if, every every piece in there is important, but there's a there's a critically important distinction between a, something that is necessary for the whole system to function versus something that is actually regulating that system. So in the case of a car, a spark plug is necessary for the, the car to drive down the road, but it's not the thing that's regulating how fast the car is driving down the road. Neither is a piston, neither is the engine block. What's, what's regulating it in this case is actually the driver sitting in the driver's seat turning the engine on and pushing either the accelerator pedal or the brake. That's, that's the regulator of what's, whether that car is moving or not. Um, in the case of our body, what I had to figure out was what, what, is, what is the most upstream thing what is, that is actually regulating this system, regulating, deciding whether our body should produce lots of energy or very little. And that's where Dr. Robert Navios came in and the cell danger response. And basically, he revolutionized our understanding of mitochondria. Mitochondria used to be taught about as sort of these mindless energy generators that just take in carbs and fats and pump out energy. You were taught about them in high school and college biology courses as the powerhouse of the cell. That's what everybody remembers about mitochondria. Again, these sort of mindless energy generators, they take the food we eat, they pump out cellular energy. But in fact, they are much, much more than that. They have a second key role beyond their role as energy generators that is just as important as their role in energy production. And that is in, in, in cellular defense. 
So it turns out that mitochondria are actually environmental sensors. They're like canaries in a coal mine that are the most upstream, the most sensitive thing that are designed to detect threats present in the body. So basically, they are energy generators and threat sensors at the same time. And they are constantly asking the question, is it safe for us to produce energy? And they are, they're answering that based on the degree of signals that they're getting about the threats that are present in the body. So what kind of threats can they sense? They can sense pretty much any type of stressor or threat you can imagine from uh, poor nutrition to sleep deprivation, to psychological stress, to toxins, environmental toxicants, um, to uh, you name it, to pathogens, respiratory infections, any type of stressor you can think up, those mitochondria can sense it. And then they send signals throughout the whole body that the body is under attack. And then what happens is in response to that, they turn down the dial on energy production and shift resources towards cellular defense. So these two roles of mitochondria as energy generators and cell defenders are mutually exclusive. They're two sides of the same coin. And to the extent they're being asked to defend against threats, they are shutting down energy production. And that is fundamentally the most important regulatory aspect of what controls our energy levels. Okay, but that's still a little bit vague to, for us to explain to people. Um, how do they defend? What what are they doing? I mean, they they have a way of defending. So what are they doing when they sense a virus like the COVID virus? What what are, what mechanism of actions do they start doing to defend that cell that's just been infected or? Poisoned. Mitochondria have uh, sort of two roles in that. One is a direct role in actually as part of the innate immune system. And there's, there's great articles online. If you look up mitochondria innate immune system, some articles call it the hub of the innate immune system. And um, they are directly involved in fighting off and defending against threats. Um, there's a number of layers to this, but one aspect of it is, let's say, in the context of um, a pathogen, a, a viral infection, for example, what they're doing is when they sense the presence of a pathogen invading the cell, they, some of these pathogens have actually been designed to uh, co-opt the energy produced by mitochondria for their own purposes. So that's part of why they're designed to shut down energy production in the presence of those pathogens. They don't, they don't want to f allow the pathogen to feed off the energy being produced. So what they do is they turn down energy production. And then as they turn down energy production, instead of putting out a lot of ATP, cellular energy, adenosine triphosphate, that's energy that our cells run on, they start throwing off a lot of free radicals reactive oxygen species. So people have heard of antioxidants. People think antioxidants, good, oxidants are bad. Well, in this case, the mitochondria are intentionally throwing off lots of free radicals. And those free radicals are harmful. And they are harmful to anything they contact, including pathogens. So when they contact a pathogen, they're throwing off lots of free radicals to kill off the pathogen. So the mitochondria are directly in, involved in this process as, a, as part of this defense system, as part of the innate immune system in defending the cell. Now, they also see, help seal, so they, they coordinate other responses. They're signaling to the rest of the body um, to coordinate immune responses, inflammatory responsive responses, detoxification responses, whatever is needed to respond to that threat. Um, mitochondria are sensing it and then coordinating the response and are sometimes often involved in directly responding to the threat as well as I just described. So um, one of the ways they, they signal is, let's say we seal off the, the cell as much as possible. We harden the cell membranes and that decreases cellular communication from cell to cell, but we're sealing off the cell. So as an analogy Think of if you're in a war zone um, and you're in your home and somebody throws poison gas in the street, um, 
it, it's a it's a terrible mistake to sort of go about your business as usual and go, you know, well, I think it's a beautiful day outside. Let's go for a walk in the park and let's go for a stroll outside. Let's, you know, open the, the windows and let the fresh air in, right? What you do if, if there's poison gas outside is you close your doors, you close your windows, you seal yourself in. And that's exactly what the kind of response mitochondria are coordinating at the cellular level in response to threats. So they're sealing the cell, they're stiffening the membranes of the cell, decreasing cellular communication, in this case, preventing the pathogen from spreading easily from cell to cell, sealing it off, and then throwing off tons of toxins themselves, these free radicals, to kill whatever is present. And they do so even sacrificing themselves in the process. So those free radicals also damage the, the cell parts. They damage the mitochondria and the other parts of the cell. And the cell can even commit what's called apoptosis, programmed cell death, in, in an effort to neutralize that, that thing that's inside of it, whether it's a pathogen or a toxin or something like that. They throw off all these three radicals, sometimes damages the cell, and sometimes the whole cell basically will die in, in response to that. That stage, Dr. Navarro, because I love reading his work, it's, it's very, you know, it's got a lot of material out there, but he says that's stage one of the cell danger response. And in that stage, the cell's not producing energy, very little energy. And you are not supposed to come along at that stage and start giving the cell AT, uh, things to increase ATP like CoQ10, ribose, or all the other things out there that we that we normally give to the mitochondria to power them up again. So that's uh, that was an interesting thing when I when I read that from him is that um, it's the wrong time to give those kind of supplements to people, and then uh, some people. So then people stay stuck there in that cell danger response one. And that some people, people with chronic fatigue, I'm certainly one of them. I probably had chronic fatigue for most of my life, really. Uh, they stay stuck there. And then they have to move into the next stage where they're starting to get better. And that's where your book has also really great information. So can we talk about that? Like, you know, the difference like, between CDR1 and CDR2? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the gist of it is if you think of like an animal, like a mammal, let's say a bear in a harsh environment, when, they, when the winter comes around and it's time for them to turn down the engines and go into hibernation mode. So it's the wrong time to rev up the engine. So you don't, you don't want to rev up the engines if the body is intelligently shutting down in response to a... a um, a harsh environment. That's what our body is designed to do. So the, the, there's sort of two layers to this that we want to think about. The first is to, you know, it's a mistake to understand this as just simply mitochondrial dysfunction. I see that word being thrown around a lot in um, functional medicine communities. And people assume that if you are not producing a lot of energy at the mitochondrial level. Oh, it's mitochondrial dysfunction. Let's throw CoQ10 and acetyl-L-carnitine and D-ribose and um, alpha-lipoic acid and B vitamins at it and give those, new, those mitochondria the, the, the cofactors to produce more energy. Um, but that's not the right way to think about it if the mitochondria are intelligently, adaptively shutting themselves down and producing less energy in response to a harsh environment, okay? So the first thing to do is to understand, okay, my energy levels are a reflection of to what degree I have total body stress load. I have stressors at the lifestyle and environmental level that are signaling my mitochondria to turn down energy production and to shift resources towards cellular defense. So step one is not provide cofactors to mitochondria and nutrients to mitochondria to rev them back up. Step one is to figure out what are the triggers that are shutting them down and remove those sources of stress or danger signals to the mitochondria to allow them to sense that they are safe and it's okay to produce energy. So an example of those might be the bacteria from Lyme 
mold, candida. So many people are struggling with those particular issues today. So basically what you're saying is you have to get rid of those triggers for the for the mitochondria to feel safe and be able to move on. Yes. And I would say even much more common than those things are things like poor nutrition. If you have poor nutrition, that that's a major factor. If you have poor sleep quality or inadequate duration of sleep, that's a major trigger for your mitochondria to shut down. And we can talk about the mechanisms of why. Um, if you have poor gut health, you know, we know there's a gut mitochondria axis where what's going on in the gut is directly communicating to the mitochondria um, about what's going on in the body through a number of different mechanisms. And that's a very common issue as well. Um, we know that body composition and blood sugar levels are amazingly common. Over 80% of the population in the United States has uh, excess body fat, which itself produces higher levels of what are called adipokines, which basically creates a low-level inflammatory state in the body chronically. And the mitochondria sense the inflammatory cytokine molecules themselves and respond to them as a danger signal. So your mitochondria are literally turning down your energy production in response to you having too much fat on your body. Um, in addition, hi, hi, hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia as well, one third of adults have reactive hypoglycemia where they have low blood sugar two to five hours after eating a meal. But even more common, uh, over 80% of the population has hyperglycemia and daily spikes into the pre-diabetic or diabetic ranges of high blood sugar levels um, or, and or chronically high blood sugar levels. And the high blood sugar is itself a danger signal to mitochondria. Mitochondria interpret the, the, the presence of high blood sugar as a toxic molecule that is a danger. And so they start to protect themselves from it and they start to produce less energy. So they start to actually wall them themselves off. The cell walls itself off to protect from too much energy, too much glucose getting into the cell. And that is what insulin resistance is. Insulin resistance is actually an adaptive mechanism to prevent the cytotoxic effects of that high blood sugar becoming that that glucose becoming too high inside of the cell and and in at the mitochondrial level um, because it's toxic when it gets inside the cell. So the cell is trying to prevent it from getting in by becoming insulin resistant. So all of those things are danger signals to mitochondria and are incredibly common. You know, not just let's say the one out of a hundred, I'm just making numbers up here, but let's say the one out of a hundred people who have Lyme disease or something like that. Um, but eight, you know, eight out of 10 people that have hyperglycemia or excess body fat or poor nutrition or inadequate sleep, um, or poor sleep quality. I mean, these, these are affecting the vast majority of people. And this is why we have, uh, an epidemic of chronic fatigue of chronic low energy levels. You know, and just reminding me that um, for years they've said that uh, autism is a mitochondrial disorder, and I thought, isn't everything? <laughs> it's, why are they targeting certain conditions like autism? But um, you know, it's interesting because those kids all have candida, every single one of them, and other issues going on too. Definitely heavy metals and so on. So of course they're going to have a mi mitochondrial disorder, but. They almost acted like that's it, like that's the end. They have mitochondrial disorder, you know, nothing you can do about it. But so I'm so impressed with your book because you take all those different issues and you explain it, but you do such a beautiful job. And I think you are already very clearly explaining things that uh, could be complicated, but you're making them simple. So. Could we take some of those, um, like, for example, as you said, huge number of people in this country are obese and are at least way overweight. Um, are you saying if they lose weight, the mitochondria will come back online again and start producing more energy? Absolutely. Yeah. And through, t through two specific mechanisms, and, and there's actually, there's more, but let's just talk about two specific mechanisms. So one is, again, ex the, the body fat itself is an endocrine organ and produces these adipokines, which create this low-grade chronic inflammation, which itself is a danger signal to mitochondria. 
they, they turn down energy production in response to it. So by losing body fat, you are reducing chronic inflammation in your body. And um, it's important to understand that these, you know, I, I mentioned before mitochondria can sense any type of stressor imaginable. And that people can, that, that sounds almost like crazy to think about. It sounds like they're, how can you possibly help getting them back online again? Because there's so many things uh, causing them to shut down. Like it feels overwhelming at this point in the podcast here. With that in mind, what we need to understand is that in Dr. Navio's words, the, the mitochondria are the central hub of the wheel of metabolism, the central hub of your metabolism. So they're connected to everything. And in that way, you know, we're looking at it from one perspective where all of these different things, if you've got problems at the brain level with, you know, psychological stress or emotional stress, that, that can affect mitochondria. And there's actually a field called mitochondrial psychobiology that studies the mind mitochondria link. We know there's a field uh, of the gut mitochondria axis. So, oh, if you've got poor gut health, you've got dysbiosis, you've got intestinal permeability, that can affect mitochondria. You've got sleep problems and circadian rhythm problems, which are rampant, that can affect mitochondria. You've got nutrition problems, that can affect mitochondria. You've got exposure to environmental toxicants, that can affect mitochondria. You've got infections, that can affect mitochondria, right? All of these different things pull on mitochondria, but it's also true that this works in reverse. So just as small amounts of many different types of stressors can create downward spirals of worse and worse symptoms, worse and worse mitochondrial function. The more you improve any of those buckets, any aspect of your life, whether it's sleep and circadian rhythm, reducing toxic load, um, improving your nutrition, or many other areas, you're creating, you're reversing it, you're creating positive upward spirals of improved physiology throughout your body, improved hormonal health, improved neurotransmitter health, because when you improve mitochondrial health as the central hub of the wheel of metabolism, it helps improve everything else. So in the book, I, I believe I heard you say, start with one thing and start working on that. Where would somebody start? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at here is any bucket you choose to work on will affect the whole system. Okay, so we start small. We don't say, hey, work on everything. Okay, we start with one thing, whatever feels doable to you. And whatever, you know, it, it differs depending on the individual as far as what's going to be most appropriate for them. But if we just start with nutritional interventions, let's start with um, fat loss and blood sugar levels. And let's start with some really easy stuff that is, that can make a big difference with virtually no effort. Working on nutrition is going to give you weight loss and blood sugar is going to balance out more. So that's a good one, maybe for a first step. I know for myself, I got nutrition dialed in after quite a while, but the sleep thing was huge for me. I, I, I had to fix sleep. First of all, as far as blood sugar levels, again, this is, this is affecting over 80% of the population. So this is a great place to start. And the good news is there are a few very easy, simple to implement things that require vir virtually no effort um, that can make a big difference. So for example, um, don't change anything that you're eating on your plate, but assuming you're eating a relatively healthy diet, and I assume most people listening are, but let's say you just altered this one thing of eating the vegetables on your plate first in the meal. Well, that one strategy alone, not even changing what you're eating or how much you're eating, just changing the order in which you're eating the food that's on your plate. That one thing alone has taken people's uh, hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of insulin resistance, down from 8.3% to 6.8%, which is almost out of the diabetic range. And again, that's just in a matter of weeks from just that one thing. We also know there's similar research um, 
that shows that when you consume the protein first in the meal, so let's say you have a chicken breast or a piece of fish or some shrimp or something like that, you consume that first in your meal before uh, any starchy carbs, that also has the same kind of effect. So we can combine these two things. Let's eat the protein and let's eat the non-starchy vegetables first in the meal. And we haven't even started to change what we're eating yet, but we're already making a big effect, okay? Um, in addition, we can also add things like acetic acid from vinegar. If we put some vinegar on those vegetables or mix it in with a salad dressing and mix it in or a sauce of some kind, and we're, we're now consuming that in our meal, that acetic acid further creates, enhances insulin sensitivity and allows muscle cells to soak up uh, glucose more effectively and ramps, ramps up energy burning in those cells so that, that that energy is partitioned better in our body and doesn't and, and basically gets soaked up faster so it doesn't elevate blood sugar levels. So now we've done three things that require almost no effort, haven't even involved changing what you're eating yet or reducing what you're eating. And we are already making a very, very profound impact on blood sugar levels. Now, we can add a couple more things to this. Um, one is cinnamon. Cinnamon is an amazing tool for combating hyperglycemia. And you can take either cinnamon pills or what I do is I just take a few grams, like half a teaspoon of cinnamon, put it in a tiny bit of water and just chug it really quick, um, either before or after meals. And that will further help enhance insulin sensitivity. Um, again, almost no effort. Now, if you want to get into the bigger needle movers here, the main cause of high blood sugar levels, the primary cause. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about causes of insulin resistance being this or that thing, but the truth is, the harsh truth is, the main cause of insulin resistance is actually excess body fat itself. As the fat cells balloon up and soak up more fat, they basically can only take on so much fat before they expand too much, like a balloon, and they can't take on any more fat and they essentially become leaky. And at that point, um, you will, you will not soak up excess nutrients from your blood as effectively as you should, as you would, if you were leaner. And that is fundamentally the main cause of insulin resistance. So if we want to correct chronic high blood sugar or having spikes into the, the pre-diabetic or diabetic ranges of blood sugar, we need to reduce body fat. And this is, a, this is a problem for over 8 out of 10 people in the United States. They have excess body fat exceeding their personal fat threshold, the amount of um, fat they can have on their body while maintaining metabolic health. So reducing fat is, is a high priority. I would tell people, eat your protein and vegetables and drop the carbs initially. Don't have any sugar whatsoever. And basically by doing that, you're doing what's called food combining. That's a great way to quickly lose weight where people would lose 18 pounds in a month. So um, I like the idea of eating the protein first and then your vegetables. That's a great tip. But your food combining also, if you just drop the carbs for a while, anyway, I personally have to have some complex carbs or I don't sleep well. But for a long time, I just had the protein and vegetables to get my yeast under control. So I just want to throw that in as an extra tip. But this is great information. So, okay, there we go. People are going to lose weight. That's going to help the mitochondria. Then what's the next most important thing? Okay, so, so losing weight is critical for this. And um, as far as losing weight, there's a lot of things we could talk about here. Um, but protein is a big one. Um, it's been shown in, in numerous studies that uh, ramping up protein intake is a wonderful way to enhance satiety, enhance resting metabolic rate, the speed of your metabolism, um, and reduce your overall intake of food while losing weight and retain muscle mass during a weight loss diet. And it, you know, I like it because like all the other strategies I've mentioned, it requires almost no effort, it's extremely easy to do, and it doesn't involve eating less. So it just involves, you know, a very simple, low, low willpower strategy of I can actually eat more. I can emphasize eating more protein. I can eat it first in my meal. And by eating more protein first in the meal, 
I will naturally regulate my satiety and hunger hormones in a way that will drive me to consume less of the foods that will result in me putting on body fat and will naturally tend to push me towards fat loss. Okay. But in the book, you talk about chrononutrition, which is another fascinating field. Uh, can you just bring a little bit of that into the picture too? Like the timing of the day that we eat? Okay. So we have um, a circadian system in our body. We have this 24 hour biological clock built into our body. We've got a central clock built into the brain. And that central clock is primarily responsive to light inputs. And this is the clock that regulates neurotransmitters and hormones uh, and many aspects of our, our metabolic function in a way that um, basically creates sleep and wake cycles. So this is why every night through no volition of your own, you go into a different state of consciousness for eight hours. And then in the morning, again, through no volition of your own, you wake up and are awake and alert and energetic and go about your day. So the circadian system is regulating all of that. This is also the reason why when you travel halfway around the world, you get jet lag. It's because you've disrupted that circadian clock. Now, I would argue most people are in a chronic state of jet lag because they're not, they don't have um, optimal inputs into their circadian rhythm. Now, I'm jumping a bit ahead of myself, but we have the central clock in the brain. And it, as a more recent scientific discovery, we've also discovered that we have peripheral circadian clocks through basically all the tissues of our body, from our muscle cells, to our heart cells, to our intestines, to our liver, to our hormone-producing glands, to basically everything. And all of those circadian clocks and all of those tissues are primarily responsive to food inputs. And ideally what we want, if we want this whole circadian network in our body to function well, is we want to link up the central clock with all the peripheral clocks. We want all the right inputs at both levels and we want them to be synchronized. As far as the food side of this, what I talk about in the book is there are a few key mechanisms to make sure that your circadian rhythm is functioning well at, at the peripheral level. So just as the central clock needs light inputs for you know the right kind of light at the right time of day and not at the wrong time of day like if you have um really bright artificial light blaring into your eyes at midnight or two in the morning you will disrupt your circadian rhythm in a very profound way the same is true with food well actually i'll add one more layer if you have too much light through too many hours of the day through let's say 18 hours of the 24-hour day or 16 hours of the 24-hour day, you, you, will, you will disrupt circadian rhythm. So um, the same exact principle is true when it comes to food. We need food for the right duration each day, and it has to be at the right time. The timing of it has to be critical, okay? So the, the very short version of this is what research has shown is that most people have a feeding window over 14 hours a day. This is the time from their first bite of food to their last bite of food each day. Most Americans are consuming food over 14 hours a day. So we're consuming food almost from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed each night. And um, what is, has been shown to be optimal based on lots of animal studies and human studies is somewhere between six to 10 hours a day. Okay, certainly below 12, but somewhere between 6 to 10 appears to be optimal. And we know this because a large body of evidence has now shown that when you do that, you reduce oxidative stress in the body, you reduce insulin resistance and high blood sugar levels, you reduce markers of chronic inflammation, and you see widespread improvements in metabolic health and many, many other markers of metabolic health. That was going to say, so there's a mouse study where they took a group of mice, both groups ate a bad mouse diet. And except one group did exactly that. They ate within a short um, eight hour or so window during the night, which is when they're supposed to eat. But the other group could eat whenever they wanted to. And even though they, the, both groups had this bad diet, the group just who you know did the time-restricted feeding basically that it was almost like the basically they were quite healthy and the bad diet wasn't even bothering them 
So that's a super important thing to do. Yep. Yep. There's a number of studies like that in animals where, um, you know, basically you give two, two groups of animals access to the same exact food, but at just at different times of the day. And you can create massive differences in metabolic health um, and fat gain and insulin resistance and markers of inflammation and oxidative stress just by what time of day you're giving them access to that food. And then if you then change the time of day to instead of their nighttime sleeping period, um, the, the, the time that they're supposed to be awake, you reverse all of those effects. And the same types of things have been shown in humans. We know that night eating, late night eating is linked to a number of different negative metabolic health effects, increased risk of obesity, hyperglycemia, and many other um, markers. We know that too long of a feeding window is linked to all of the same things. So what we want is a feeding window between six to 10 hours. Shorter is not better necessarily, by the way. The way I would break that down is the more sedentary and more overweight you are, the more you will benefit from a shorter feeding window. Whereas the more physically active you are and leaner you are, the more that you might do better with uh, something closer to a 10-hour feeding window. So, for example, for me, I, I function much better on like a 10-hour feeding window than I do a, a, a six-hour feeding window, for example, because I do a huge amount of physical activity every day. I need those, those meals, you know, before and after my, my workouts. That makes sense. But from the research I've done on chrononutrition, the timing of your protein is important. The Better to have protein earlier in the day. It's better for the brain. Do you, I think you said that in the book. What I say in the book is it's better to have protein at all your meals. <laughs> so um, I, I'm not aware of a strong, a, a strong body of evidence that makes a case for, you know, sort of having the majority of one's protein specifically uh, earlier or later in the day. But there is certainly a case for what's called early time-restricted feeding, which means in the literature, it's small e and then capital TRF. And um, what this means is they've tested early versus late time-restricted feeding. So basically, there's a number of studies along the lines of, okay, we have two eight-hour feeding windows or 10-hour feeding windows per day. And within those feeding windows, we're going to give these two groups of people the exact same diet the exact same total number of calories, the exact same percentage of carbs and fats and proteins. Um, but we're going to shift. So let's say it's a total of just for easy math. Some of these studies use like 1500 calorie diet, but just for easy math, let's say a thousand calories. Okay. We're going to take 600 calories and put it at breakfast for this group. And then 200 calories for lunch and 200 calories for dinner. And in this other group, we're going to shift those 600 calories instead of for breakfast to dinner. So 200 calories for breakfast, 200 calories for lunch, 600 calories for dinner. Okay. Still exact same number of calories and the diet, the exact foods they're eating are exactly the same in both groups. The same total um, hours of, of feeding are the same. And what those studies show is that in most cases, not every study has shown this, but the majority of these studies find that early time-restricted feeding, where they stack more of the daily calories consumed towards the early part of the day, enhances metabolic health, increases energy levels, reduces insulin sensitivity further, improves other markers of metabolic health, and maybe most importantly, results in more weight loss than the group that eats more of their daily calories in the, in the dinner meal as opposed to breakfast. Culturally, that doesn't work so well for us because people rush out the door in the morning, give their kids a bowl of cereal or eat a pop tart or something. And then, but they come home for dinner and they'll have a better meal because they want to sit down and eat together. So that's, that's good to know, but um, we got to figure that. I mean, our culture doesn't support that really. You know, people can, can design their life more in this direction if they choose. At the end of the day, it's not, um, you know, nothing I present is um, an extreme dogmatic, you know, one size fits all sort of approach where it's like, you have to do this rule, you have to do that rule, you have to do this rule. And if you don't do one of these rules, then you're, you're messing up the whole thing. Um, what, what I'm doing is I'm presenting a buffet of, of options, of strategies. That, can, that people can use to um, enhance their metabolic health, 
cause fat loss, improve mitochondrial health and improve energy levels. And people can pick and choose the ones that work for them. And, you know, for now, brush off the ones that don't work for them. And that's totally fine. Well, you're an exercise expert and exercise a lot yourself. So if we could just spend a second or two on exercise, because it's very frustrating to have chronic fatigue or be a long hauler and have all the people around you that are healthier tell you that if you just go outside and exercise, your energy will come back. Where they, these people have not enough energy to barely make it to the bathroom in the morning. So what's your advice on, on exercise? Exercise and chronic fatigue is historically a controversial area where people have had some, some pretty sort of famous battles in this and debates over this, this topic. It's very contentious where some people are saying, hey, you know, exercise is important for people with chronic fatigue syndrome. It helps them. And other people are saying, no, absolutely. Exercise makes me worse and, um, and makes patients with chronic fatigue syndrome worse and that you should not recommend it. I'm in, I would say, the camp that is pro-exercise, but I also think that the, 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 the people saying that it makes them worse, that that's totally true. So um, here's, here's the, the deal. So one of the, the, the main symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis is post-exertional malaise. It's, it is sort of almost a diagnostic of the condition that these people react negatively to exercise and may be fatigued and have really, you know, brain fog and body pains uh, for one, two, three days after exercise. It is certainly important for these people to avoid over-exercising. Now, the, to broaden this discussion a bit, this is really the, the, the context of this discussion is something called hormetic stress. And hormetic stress is transient metabolic stress that stimulates the body and stimulates the mitochondria in particular to grow bigger and stronger, to be able to enhance their resilience, their resistance to a broad range of other stressors in the future. So very much in the same way that if you lift a weight, if I do a bunch of bicep curls with a heavy challenging weight, then I will stimulate this muscle to grow stronger in response to that. Hormetic stressors, these transient metabolic stressors, challenge our mitochondria in the same way and stimulate them to grow bigger and stronger. Now, this is a a critically important concept to understand because it's also been shown that people lose on average about 10% of their mitochondrial capacity with each decade of life. And to maybe that doesn't sound like that bad, but I'll state it another way. The average 70 year old has lost 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. So this is the engine inside of your cells that's producing energy. This is like going from a Ferrari engine in your youth to a moped engine when you're 70. Now, the good news is that that is not actually a natural product of the aging process. It doesn't need to be this way. You don't need to lose this much of your mitochondrial capacity. Um, this is actually a product of lifestyles that are lacking, that are... Um, deficient in hormetic stressors. Now, what are these hormetic stressors? Exercise and all the different subtypes of exercise is, are, are one type of hormetic stressors. Thermal stressors, heat and cold, are other types of hormetic stressors. Um, fasting is another type of hormetic stressor. Breath-holding practices is another type. Uh, certain types of light exposure, like UV light from the sun, red and near-infrared light, are hormetic stressors. Uh, and certain types of chemicals and phytochemicals from plant foods like sulforaphane and curcumin and things like that are um, what are called xenohormetic stressors that act on some of these same pathways. Now, again, what these do is they create a transient metabolic stress that stimulates the mitochondria to grow bigger and stronger. Now, we talked about the CDR, the cell danger response earlier in this conversation and people who get locked into who gets stuck in the cell danger response. Well, I'm of the opinion that one of the most essential things necessary to unlock that is to start to play with hormetic stressors, to start to create a transient increase in metabolic stress to disrupt that system 
and help to shift the set point, to create a new set point, a new threshold by which those mitochondria are sensing whether or not they should be locked in that cell danger response or not. The most important takeaway for people is that, because that's where people are, they're locked in that initial cell danger response first stage and they can't get well. So I know your book covers this thoroughly. I know we're kind of running out of time, but um, just to make, to add to what you said, I heard uh, Dr. Frank Schallenberger, who's in Nevada um, in his seventies, mentioning that his own mitochondria are, he's are like of a man who's in his thirties and from him, I learned that you can actually test your mitochondria. Do you know about that? Um, bioenergy testing centers. There's just a few of them around the country. There's about four or five in Texas, but Dave Asprey has one. He has one, Frank Schellenberger, and then also um, David Minkoff in Clearwater, Florida. So if anybody is close or can go to those places, that would be interesting to test your mitochondria. Now, I, now that I heard him say that, I'm kind of curious, but um, I know myself. Uh, I, I have a lot of energy for being in my 70s. I'm blessed that way, but I'd still like to know, you know, how am I doing? And and then there's times, too, where I have much more consistent energy and other times not. So uh, I wonder sometimes what makes you go up and down like that. So anyway, I, I loved your book. <laughs> I think everybody should own this book and understand everything that you're saying. You know, I did a podcast with Dr. Kelman, Raphael Kelman, and he is uh, what we talked about is that, you know, and people don't have energy. They go to the doctor, he tests their thyroid, it's, it will be low, and they put them on a thyroid medication right away, as if it's the thyroid. But he is saying that it isn't the thyroid. You don't put somebody on a, um, the thyroid medication. You find out exactly this. What triggers are, are keeping that, that are making that thyroid under function like that? So... You have the answers in your book, and it's a very important book, because um, I know we're um, out of time, but do you mind um, just saying something about melatonin? Because I heard you say this, and I thought this is really important, because people are a little bit confused about melatonin. Some people are afraid of it. I know if I take too much, I'll have strange, weird dreams, but um, three milligrams uh, is a really good amount for me, and then once I learned all the great things about melatonin, so I've heard, I learned it from you. So could you add that uh, to, for, so everyone can learn? Yeah, melatonin is is one of the key mechanisms that links sleep and circadian rhythm in particular to mitochondrial health. It turns out that, you know, most people think of melatonin as, oh, it's this sleep. I mean, most people don't even know it's a hormone. They think, oh, melatonin is a sleep supplement. Um, but it's a hormone produced in our bodies. And um, it does much more than just help us sleep. It's actually the most potent mitochondrial antioxidant that exists. So it's vital for protecting our mitochondria um, from harm. And it also interacts with the internal antioxidant and detoxification system inside mitochondria called the ARE, the antioxidant response element. And melatonin helps recharge that system helps recharge levels of critical antioxidants like glutathione and catalase and superoxide dismutase. And um, so basically that's designed to happen every night while you sleep. And it's critical to protect your circadian rhythm and optimize your circadian rhythm and sleep for that purpose. Um, it's as a one more layer, I'll add to this. Um, supplementary melatonin can be useful in that regard. Some people are hypersensitive to it. I happen to be one of the people that's hypersensitive to um, exogenous external melatonin. It disrupts my sleep, actually. Um, but um, one of the best ways to... So one other layer I'll add here is not only is um, melatonin produced at the pineal gland in the brain, it turns out, as a more recent scientific discovery, it's been found that... Um, melatonin is actually produced throughout our body in all the cells of our body by the mitochondria themselves. It's produced my, by mitochondria for mitochondria as a mitochondri mitochondrial antioxidant. And the primary thing that actually increases the production of that is actually light, is particularly red and near-infrared light. 
which we can get with red light therapy or we can get for free from the sun. And that is a wonderful way to ramp up your melatonin. So in general, um, to, to quickly summarize, optimize your circadian rhythm. So you help your brain produce adequate levels of melatonin, get adequate light exposure, sunlight or red and urine for red light therapy to optimize your full body melatonin levels. And um, if you're older in particular, if you're old, older than 50 or 60 years old, consider also using uh, at least low dose melatonin supplements as well before bed because melatonin levels decline as we age. So we can use an extra little boost there. And I have a gene called, uh, it, it's a gene that converts serotonin into melatonin. So just a little bit of melatonin helps me fall asleep. Otherwise I'll stay up all night probably. So you mentioned red light therapy. So I want everybody to know that you have the book, uh, the ultimate guide to red light therapy by, um, Ari Witten is out there too. And um, and it's the only book. Well, after Ari put out his book, a lot of people came along and copied him, but he it's the book to buy. So that's another amazing piece of information. And when I learned that about melatonin, I was really excited that, uh, that I didn't even think that the mitochondria made it. Gut bacteria do too, but I was doing some searching because I love to do research and found a study where they fed um, the the uh, so there was a bunch of mice and they were fed a very high fat diet, which caused dysbiosis in the gut. And when they gave a melatonin, it fixed it. Then they, it corrected the dysbiosis caused by the high fat diet. So that's another little nice positive thing about melatonin. So I'm, I just, we just had to throw that in. So, <laughs> all right. Thank you. You're so good at explaining things in such a simple way. I know everybody got it which is important because this can be a very complicated topic. And I hope people will listen to this podcast more than once and share it and go out and buy this book. Can they get it um, like Kindle, Audible? Do you have it in Audible? Because I only have the Kindle in this hard copy. Yeah, and I spent three days in an awful recording studio in Costa Rica um, with no air conditioning recording that. So, <laughs> yes, there is an Audible version that I worked very hard to produce. Yeah, that is your voice. And actually, I didn't buy the Audible. I heard a free chapter that Hay House has given. It's a great chapter just by itself. Thank you very much. I know we went over, but every bit of information is priceless. So I can't thank you enough. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Donna. Well, everybody, thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, please come back, of course. This was Ari Witten. Eat for Energy is the name of his book. And please share this with many other people because it's a very, very, we, you know, we have just too many weak, sick, exhausted people in this country. So Ari has the answer. So thank you. Body ecology is not a diet. It's a way of life based on seven universal laws that always guide us toward the truth. If you want to know more about us, about these seven universal laws, and about our amazing, effective products, go to our website, bodyecology.com. Also, for a free transcript of this show, go to our website. Again, that's bodyecology.com. And of course, if you like what you're learning, we'd be very grateful for a review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got a topic you want to learn about, just let us know. This information does not replace the advice of your doctor or healthcare professional. Thank you very much for listening, and here's to a happier, healthier world.